All right, can I have you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 11. Now, Daniel chapters 10 through 12, as we said last time, form one narrative dealing with one vision. Uh, this is Daniel's fourth vision. And with each one that he received from God, they get longer and more detailed. Well, <laughs> chapter 11 is the granddaddy of all of them. Uh, it really is a panoramic view of history, uh, starting with the Persian Empire and running all the way through to the coming of the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 11 is the most prophetic and detailed chapter on prophecy in the Bible, predicting history over some 375 years. Now, there are 135 fulfilled prophecies in the first 35 verses alone. Now, of course, when these were given to Daniel, these prophecies, that's what they were. They were prophecies. They were yet future to him. Of course, as we study them, most of them are ancient history to us, except uh, verses 36 to 45 are still future. We'll talk about those when we get there. But um, once again, guys, the prophecies in the book of Daniel, and in particular chapter 11, are so detailed, so specific, that skeptics and other Bible critics have long claimed that it's impossible for anyone to write in advance the kind of detailed facts found in the book of Daniel. Therefore, they conclude, someone claiming to be Daniel wrote these things down centuries after the fact. In other words, what they say is these, the book of Daniel contains recorded history, not future prophecy. Well, we've dealt with that in chapter 1 when we first started this study, that Jesus quoted from Daniel and said, Daniel the prophet said. Now, I don't know about you, but that's good enough for me. He didn't say, you know, so-and-so who claimed to be Daniel said. He said, Daniel the prophet said. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. And three times in his book, he talks about Daniel. When the Septuagint was done, was the translation of Hebrew scriptures into the Greek, 270 B.C., it included the book of Daniel. So these people that say, well, it happened, you know, they, somebody wrote these things down like in the first and second century B.C. after the fact. That's ridiculous. All right. Now, let me just say this to you tonight, guys. If you love history, you're going to have a really good evening. If you don't like history, it's going to be rough. <laughs> because this is going to be very historical, because we're going to go verse by verse looking at each of the prophecies and then telling you how they were fulfilled in history. All right? You might not get thrilled about all the history, but know this. Get thrilled about how God's Word is so specific, it's so anointed, it's so inspired. Only God could have said these things hundreds of years in advance and been right, well, some, in some of these verses, thousands of years in advance and been right about everything. So as we start chapter 11, understand that uh, chapter 11, verse 1 of Daniel actually belongs with chapter 10. Let me just read the last couple of verses of 10 and then uh, first verse of chapter 11. Uh, then he said, and Daniel is talking about the angel that God sent to him. Uh, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. Now, we studied this last time, so you can go online and listen to that. But I will tell you what you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, 
I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So the angels all talking there, the end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11, about how that, you know, um, he did battle in the spirit realm to make sure Daniel got, the, got uh, what God wanted him to hear. The answer to his prayer about what this prophecy, what this vision means, and also how he, uh, he um, confirmed or he strengthened King Darius the Mede, this angel did. I mean, you know, God sends angels to protect us, uh, to strengthen us. Remember Elijah was all burned out and an angel appeared to him, gave him some of that angel food cake, and he was, wow, revived and went forth again, power. Uh, so, you know, angels are, are neat guys, and they take care of the people of God, uh, the good ones. Fallen ones, not so much. All right, guys, with, with chapter 10, uh, including the first verse of chapter 11 as the introduction, we now begin this incredible prophecy. So make sure your seatbelts are tightened. Here we go. Verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth, the angel says to Daniel. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So the angel begins by telling Daniel that after the current king of Persia, that would be Cyrus. Look at chapter 10, verse 1, tells us in the days of Cyrus. But that Cyrus would be succeeded by four kings, and the fourth king would be the strongest and richest of them all and would stir up his empire against Greece. Now, these four kings, we know them from history, were first of all Cambyses, which was Cyrus's son, who reigned from 529 to 522 BC. He was followed by Pseudo-Smyrtus, who only reigned a short period of time, from 522 to 521. He was succeeded by Darius I, otherwise known as Histopes, who ruled from 521 to 486 B.C. And I don't expect you to remember all this. I'm just going to fire it out because this is what the prophecies are all about. And then finally, he was in turn succeeded by Xerxes the Great, also known as Ahasuerus, who ruled from 485 to 465. Now, not only was the fourth king of Persia after Cyrus the most powerful and wealthy as the prophecy predicted, but he is the one that is of most interest to us because this fourth king of Persia, again, after Cyrus, well, he eventually became the husband of Esther, as recorded in the book of Esther. One author said about Xerxes I, he said, and I quote, He ruled an empire that reached from Ethiopia to India, and he had a great passion to conquer Greece. In 480, he tried to invade Greece, but his vast fleet was defeated at Salamis and Samos, and his army was defeated by Plataea. All of this occurred between chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther. He came home a bitter and angry man and sought to find relief for his wounded pride by enjoying his harem. It was at this time that Esther entered the picture. Xerxes was assassinated in August of 465 B.C. Now, history records that Xerxes the Great was replaced by his son, Artaxerxes I. And uh, he was the ruler, guys, that gave the command to Nehemiah to go forth and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He gave that command on March 14, 445 B.C., which was the starting date of the famous prophecy we studied in Daniel chapter 9. As we said, though, Xerxes the Great, as recorded in history, took four years to gather an army. He wanted to, go, he wanted to beat the Greeks so bad. He took four years to gather this army. And um, it was several hundred thousand large, some believe might have even been a million soldiers 
uh, in number, all to attack Greece. He launched his attack in 480 BC, uh, but was defeated by the Greeks. See, they were already ascending to power, all right? They were already ascending to world dominance, even though they would not be the next world empire until about 150 years later when, not until I should say, the greatest military tactician in the history of mankind came on the scene. We read, read about him in verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Well, we've already looked at this leader. He is none other than Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great began his military campaign of conquest in 334 B.C., and he conquered the entire known world in 12 years. As we have already talked about, he died in 323 B.C. at the age of 32, and his kingdom was eventually divided among his four generals, which is what verse 4 is talking about. And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others beside these. Well, history records that Alexander died uh, when he died. His kingdom was not uh, inherited by his son or his relatives, but again by his four generals, exactly as verse 4 predicted. And this was a long time before uh, Alexander even was on the scene. Again, the remarkable accuracy and specificity of these prophecies truly attests to its divine origin. Remember what God said in Deuteronomy 18. He told his people, if anyone prophesies anything in my name and it doesn't come to pass, even one thing, they are a false prophet there to be stoned. Because I'm not guessing when I tell you what's going to happen in the future. I know the end from the beginning. And I'm going to tell you things that are going to happen before they do, Isaiah 46, so that you know that I am God and this is my word because nobody can tell you the future and be right every single time except for me. So prophecy is really the stamp of authenticity upon God's word that this is in fact his word. We, we know that. Remarkable accurate. If you, if skeptics, you know, they, they try to say, well, you know, prophecy, people can, can go around and, and they can, you know, they can make them happen on their own. They can, you know, read it and go, okay, well, we got to do this to make it sound like the Bible prophesied this. Well, chapter 11 just blows that out of the water. I mean, you know, these prophecies that cover almost 400 years of, of history are so specific in detail and, and they're all right. They have all come true. All right. The four generals that inherited Alexander's kingdom are as follows. Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus I, and Ptolemy I. Now, the rest of this prophecy, guys, in chapter 11 focuses on two of the four generals that inherited land to the north and south of Israel. Seleucus, who ruled over Syria, and Ptolemy, who ruled over Egypt. Why did God only focus on these two? And not on all four generals? Well, because God's focus is on Israel and what affects his people. Seleucus to the north, the Syrian king, and Ptolemy to the south, the Egyptian king. Well, they became perennial enemies. But to get to each other, okay, they're always fighting each other. But to get to each other, they had to march through Israel, which was the corridor between Syria and Egypt. And so that dragged the Jewish people into their conflicts with each other. Subsequently, 
whichever of the two was victorious over the other, well, Israel fell under subjection to that nation. Eventually, guys, Seleucus and Ptolemy became names for dynasties. The Seleucid dynasty to the north and the Ptolemaic dynasty to the south. Now, in verses 5 to 9, the focus is on the southern dynasty. Verse 5, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Again, the king of the south is a reference to Ptolemy Lagus, who took over Egypt, and with him one of his princes, as he is called, is Seleucus Nicator. Now, one historian gives us the background. He said, and I quote, The prince under the king of the south who would gain ascendancy over the king of the south was Seleucus I, another of Alexander's most prominent generals. He had gained authority to rule Babylon in 321 B.C., However, in 316 B.C., another of Alexander's generals, Antigonus, attacked Babylon, and um, Seleucus sought help from Ptolemy, and with Ptolemy's sponsorship and superior power, was able to retain control of Babylon. He was, in a sense, Ptolemy's prince. He submitted to him to gain his military support against Antagonus. Seleucus eventually ruled all of Babylonia, Media, and Syria, a territory much larger than Ptolemy's. In fact, he assumed the title of king in 305 BC and was king of the north, referred to in this verse uh, as the king of the north. His dynasty lasted until 64 BC. Thus, guys, the prophecy uh, said the king of the south was strong, but one of his princes, somebody who actually was under him for a while, needed his help. You know, king of the north needed Ptolemy to the south's help. Uh, but eventually the king of the north became much stronger. In fact, the Seleucid dynasty became stronger than all three of the other groups or led by Alexander's generals combined. That's how strong the uh, kingdom to the north became. Verse 6, And at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. Is that all clear? We move on then. Here's what the prophecy is saying and what history confirms to be true. War between the Seleucid dynasty to the north and the Ptolemaic dynasty to the south continued until Ptolemy Philadelphus. He reigned from 285 to 246 BC, and he eventually made an alliance with the king of the north, Antiochus Theos, who reigned from 261 to 246 BC. You know, this kind of alliance was a common way in those days to bring about peace between warring nations when nothing else, when nothing else worked. What did they do? Well, they married their kids. Okay, you'd, you'd use marriage to bring about peace. I mean, you know, if you, two warring nations, you know, if one had a son, the other had a daughter, and they married him, well, not your family. Okay, you're going to really, you know, wipe each other out? I mean, some families might, but, you know, and that usually wasn't the way it worked. And so Ptolemy Philadelphus gave his daughter Berenice to marry Antiochus II, along with a generous dowry. From what I understand, it was a king's ransom, okay? But it had one condition attached to it. He, namely Antiochus II, up in Syria, 
had to divorce his current wife, Laodice, uh, and declare her two sons, Seleucus and Antiochus, to be illegitimate. Well, he agreed, and they had this giant wedding thrown for them, Berenice and Antiochus. However, the couple didn't live happily ever after because um, Philadelphus died a couple of years later, which caused Antiochus to dump Berenice and take back his former wife. But once he remarried Laodice, she immediately got her revenge by having her husband poisoned and then murdered Berenice and their child, because Antiochus and Berenice had a child, um, an infant child. She uh, had Berenice and the child murdered, uh, thus clearing the way for her son, Seleucus Callinicus, to take the throne. Riveting history, isn't it? But you see what's, what's going on here. Uh, thus the prophecy in verse 6 was fulfilled. She, Berenice, will not retain her power, and he, Antiochus II, and his power will not last. I'm reading to you out of the NIV. It's a little clearer uh, than, the NA, than the New King James. And so, guys, this attempted political alliance ended in complete failure and bloodshed. Verse 7, But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. Ptolemy Philadelphus was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy Eurigetus, uh, who was the brother of Berenice. That's the idea here, from, uh, from a branch of her roots. So her roots would be her parents, and of course they had children, each would be a branch. So it's prophesying about how that Berenice's brother, who was again Ptolemy Eurigetus, would become the new king of Egypt. Now, when he took the throne, he was absolutely outraged, okay, uh, at the treatment that his sister had at the hands of the Syrians. And he was intent on defending her honor by avenging her death. And so he raised an army, marched north, and attacked Seleucus Callinicus and his forces. He wound up capturing the capital city of Seleucia, which is what is meant by the fortress of the king of the north in verse 7. He subjugated, uh, subjugated the country, put Laodice to death for murdering his sister, and collected a great deal of wealth. Verse 8, And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years in the king of the north. Now that last statement is uh, not really uh, shared by all the other translations except for the King James. And I'll read to you uh, from the NASB to get, give you a flavor. I checked everyone that I had, and they all said the same things along this line, which I think is more accurate. Uh, let me read the whole thing, and I'll just plug in the last section from the NASB. But uh, he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. History records, guys, that Ptolemy Eurigetus brought back to Egypt 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 Syrian idols and their sacred vessels. And that's what you did in those days. If you were a king defeating another kingdom or a city, uh, you would take from them their gods, and you would bring them back and put them in the temple of your god or gods. Because the idea was that you are saying our God is stronger because our God gave us victory over this nation or this city. 
So obviously our gods are stronger than theirs. You bring back the gods of these people you've conquered, place them uh, in kind of like a, uh, a way where they're kind of now subject to the gods of the people that had won this victory. Remember how the uh, Philistines did that. Remember how they went to battle against Israel and the Israelis had a bright idea to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle and the Philistines captured it. And what did they do with it? They brought it and put it right into their temple of Dagon, their chief god, right? But what happened the next morning when the priests of Dagon went in to offer him incense? They found that he was on the ground. Dagon had a fish head and little flipper hands. He was a fish god, okay? And there he is laying on the ground, his little fish face on the ground. You know, bowing down to the God before the ark, bowing down to the God of Israel. They didn't realize that at the time. So they lifted their little God back onto his pedestal. It's really sad when you got to help your God up uh, after he's fallen. And the next day they came in, and here's Dagon again on his face. But this time the head snapped off and his little flipper fin hands snapped off. And so it says they never really again worshipped Dagon, uh, the, the, Philist the Philistines did. So, uh, but that's, that's what they did. So you get the idea of what's going on here. And um, again, quoting one historian, he said, and I quote, His thirst for revenge slacked. Ptolemy made no further attacks on Syria. He left Seleucus on the throne, satisfied the, that he had taught him a lesson he was not likely to forget. A truce was signed, it's, uh, it seems, that lasted for 10 years. Then the foolhardy Seleucus attempted to invade Egypt in 240 B.C. His fleet was lost in a storm. His forces were routed, and he was driven back to Syria in humiliating defeat. And guys, that's what was prophesied in verse 9. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now, Seleucus Callinicus, who was at this time the king of Syria, uh, died. Um, he was thrown from his horse and uh, suffered a pretty severe injury, and he wound up dying. And verse 10 tells us that, however, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. See, after the death of uh, Seleucus Callinicus, his sons Seleucus Serenunus and Antiochus III became co-rulers over the Syrian dynasty. And guys, both of these sons of Callinicus sought to restore Syria's glory. I mean, they had been beaten up for a long time by the Egyptians and they had, were tired of it. They were humiliated constantly by the forces of Egypt, and they were sick and tired of it. So uh, Seleucus Serenos, Serenos, invaded Asia Minor, uh, and later Antiochus attacked Egypt. Uh, Serenos was assassinated four years after he took the throne, after he took the throne by some of his own soldiers of mutiny, and they attacked him and killed him. But um, Antiochus, though, did go against Egypt. He didn't defeat Egypt. History tells us. But he was successful in gaining control of Israel during his campaign, which was from 219 to 217 B.C. And uh, what happened was he was successful in driving the Egyptians uh, out from the north. I mean, they had pretty much uh, occupied the entire land of Israel all the way up to the north. And so what the king of, uh, of uh, Syria was able to do, uh, Antiochus, was he was able to drive them back down all the way to the southern border of Israel, so now he controlled all of the land of Israel. And this guy's earned him the title, the Great. So now his, 
His name was Antiochus the Great because he was so uh, successful in these military campaigns, he earned that title. Now, by the time of this battle, though, the throne of Egypt had passed to a man by the name of Ptolemy Philopater, who had succeeded his father, Ergetus. Uh, but he was a weak, indecisive leader, history records, and he didn't really offer any serious resistance uh, to the more aggressive, determined Syrian leader Antiochus, who defeated him easily in battle. However, the prophecy went on to predict that the king of the south would ultimately defeat the king of the north. We read in verse 11, And the king of the south shall be moved with rage, and go out and fight with him, uh, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. See, what happened was, after Philopater was so soundly defeated by Antiochus, uh, he was awakened, you might say, <laughs> by this humiliating defeat, and he moved with rage and raised up a huge army of soldiers, mercenaries, and volunteers, and he marched toward Syria. Antiochus, though, was ready for him, having amassed an army of 73,000 foot soldiers, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Uh, and they came against uh, Philopater confident they were going to win. Syria was confident. Antiochus was confident he was going to win. However, Philopater defeated Antiochus in the Battle of Raphia. Raphia was located not too far from Gaza. All right? You talk about the Gaza Strip, you talk about, you know, that's the, that, the area. And, uh, but Philopater defeated Antiochus, killing 10,000 of his infantry, 300 cavalry, five elephants, and taking 4,000 prisoners. Um, thus, the great multitude that we read about in verse 11 uh, was given into his hand, that is the hand of the king of the south, the king of Egypt. Verse 12, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Ptolemy Philopater, uh, again, the king of the south, was ecstatic over his victory, as you can well imagine. But being a weak leader, he failed to follow through on his resounding victory by invading and conquering Syria. That's why it says he shall not prevail. The Hebrew could be translated, uh, he shall not remain triumphant. Instead, he made peace with Antiochus and returned to Egypt. But not before he annexed the land of Israel, and profane the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. What happened was he demanded entrance into the Holy of Holies. The priest wouldn't let him. I mean, the Levites were pretty tough guys, okay? And uh, they were the ones who guarded the temple. And he demanded entrance into the Holy of Holies so he could put up some kind of an image and desecrate it completely. But they, you know, he was, wasn't able to do it because as history records, he was struck down suddenly uh, by the hand of God, no doubt. And uh, he was struck down to the ground mute. He couldn't speak. This all happened before he could actually carry out his plans to totally desecrate the temple. Now, guys, it's at this point that the Jewish people start to become the uh, prophetic focus of this chapter. As one author said, and I quote, Philopater was by no means through with the Jews. All of the way back to Egypt, he brooded over his mysterious humiliation in the Jewish temple and doubtless imagined that the Jews had used some kind of magic against him. But back in Egypt, he had thousands of Jews who would be in his power. Accordingly, uh, once back in his own land, he launched a wholesale persecution of the Jews. Some 40,000 Jews were murdered for refusing to embrace the idolatrous Egyptian religion. Thus, he did cast down many tens of thousands, as verse 12 predicted, 
This action, however, was but another proof of the weakness of this evil king, end quote. Verse 13, we read, But the king of the north will return and muster a great, a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. And so the prophecy tells us that um, back in Syria, Antiochus the Great was planning his counterattack. Now you have to understand from history, he had been, uh, uh, he had been going against nations in the east, the Far East, and was having a great deal of success. And so as he conquered more and more nations, well, more and more money flowed into the coffers of his kingdom. This allowed him to eventually put together an army, which you can't even believe, an army uh, of soldiers that had the best equipment money could buy, uh, no lack of men. I mean, he had a pretty formidable army, and um, he was ready. He was ready to go against his enemy again. Uh, he further increased the size of his army by joining forces with Philip of Macedon. So with everything in place, again, he was ready once again to take on his perennial enemy, Ptolemy Philopater. And so in 201 BC, 14 years after his defeat at Raphia, he came against Egypt. What he didn't realize at the time was that Ptolemy Philopater had died and had been succeeded by his five-year-old son, who was Ptolemy uh, Epiphanes. Now, of course, the five-year-old didn't run the kingdom. He had people that kind of, you know, uh, what stood in for him and, and all, but um, he was technically the king of Egypt now. And uh, many enemies of Egypt from without, and even some Egyptian rebels from within, saw this power vacuum as their opportunity to seize control, and they rose up in rebellion. Even some of the Jews allied themselves with Antiochus the Great against Egypt because in their eyes he was a kind of a savior who was going to deliver them from Egyptian oppression, which they had chafed under for so many years. They were tired of being uh, subjugated to Egypt. And they looked at Antiochus as a, as a kind of a savior figure. He's going to go against the Egyptians. They're our enemies, right? So, you know, the enemy of our enemy is, is our friend kind of a thing. So we're going to get behind this guy, right? But guys, that would be a move they would come to greatly regret in time. The Syrians proved not to be an ally, but the worst enemy they had ever seen up until those days. Verse 14, Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also violent men of your people. Now he's talking about the Jews who joined forces with, with Antiochus. And by the way, that was against the law of Moses. Some of the historians I was reading today said that these were apostate Jews. Uh, because no Orthodox Jew would ever ally themselves with, a, with an enemy like Antiochus, okay? So these were uh, apostate Jews, as the Bible calls them here, violent men of your people, Jews, uh, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Well, as they were going to find out in about 20 years, the Syrians would wind up killing many Jews. Many would fall, and so on. Verse 15, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the, of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. As Antiochus the Great came against Egypt, the Egyptian general Scopus was sent to stop him. They met in battle in the northern part of Israel. 
near where the uh, headwaters of the Jordan start. So up near the, what we would call today the area of Banias. Uh, that's in, in uh, Caesarea Philippi, as we know from biblical terms, okay? That's where the uh, Jordan River begins. But they, uh, they met in battle in that area, and, uh, and they, but General Scopus and his troops were defeated. So the Assyrians defeated the Egyptians, and it happened when Antiochus captured the city of Sidon, which is called the fortified uh, city in verse 15. This all happened around 200 B.C., just so you, in your mind, can keep track historically where we are. Verse 16, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. After his victory against Egypt, Antiochus then turns his attention to Israel, which is called the glorious land, forcing them under his control. Again, they had previously been under Egyptian control. After he subjugated them, he showed them favor, though, because, you know, they had aided him in his war with Egypt. Verse 17 he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give them the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Antiochus was determined to completely destroy his enemy, Egypt. And he figured the best way to do it was to marry his young daughter, Cleopatra. Now, she was just a, a kid herself. And uh, he figured the best of these marriages, okay, you talk about political intrigue and things, okay. Sometimes, of course, they would enter into these marriages with their kids because they wanted the kids to be loyal to them and feed them intel, how they could best conquer this other nation. Well, that's what uh, Antiochus wanted. He, he figured if I can marry my daughter Cleopatra to uh, Egypt's young king Ptolemy Epiphanes, who was only seven at this time. I don't think she was much older, maybe 10, right? He had hoped that she would be more faithful to him, though, okay, to her father than to her husband, and would secretly feed him information that he could use to ultimately bring down the Egyptian empire once and for all. Of course, it didn't work out the way he was hoping. She really fell in love with her husband, loved him dearly, and uh, was more loyal to him than her father. In fact, she became so uh, <laughs> so uh, connected with the Egyptian uh, cause that when the Romans came and conquered her father, which we're going to talk about in a second, she was cheering him, cheering him on. So not a happy family around Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm sure they didn't uh, have a happy time together. But um, so that's how that worked out. Verse 18. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Antiochus then turns his attention toward the Mediterranean coastlands and islands. And after some initial success, Rome sent ambassadors to uh, try to reason with him, to turn around and stop his military campaigns, as now Rome, which was ascending to power, began to see him as a kind of a menace to their interests. Well, they tried to reason with him, but, you know, with a lot of these despots, there's not much you can reason with them about so uh, he, they tried to reason with him to break off his attacks, go back to his country, enjoy the fruits of his, of his victories and all. He basically told them to take a hike. So Rome sent General Lucius Cornelius Scipio to fight against him. 
one historian fills in the blanks for us. He said, and I quote, in 191 BC, the Romans fighting with their Greek allies routed the Syrians at Thermopylae and forced them to withdraw from Greece and flee to Asia Minor. Then 30,000 Roman troops pursued Antiochus into Asia, that'd be Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and defeated his much larger army of 70,000 at the Battle of Magnesia near Smyrna, which is uh, in, in modern-day Turkey, in about in 190 B.C. In 188 B.C., the Romans forced Antiochus to sign the Treaty of Apamea. Uh, Polybius reported that the Syrian king was ordered to surrender territory, much of his military force, 20 hostages, one of whom was Antiochus IV, and pay heavy indemnity to Rome. After his humiliating defeat, Antiochus returned to his country, where he was killed by an angry mob in 187 B.C., uh, in desperate need of funds, particularly those required to meet the indemnity payments to Rome, the Syrian ruler pillaged the Temple of Zeus, otherwise known as Bel, at um, Elymas, but was killed in the process, evidently, by the citizens defending their sanctuary, end quote. And guys, this is what verse 19 is alluding to. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. He was killed. Now, guys, Antiochus the Great died in 187 B.C. and was succeeded to the throne by his son, Seleucus Philopater, who really spent, he was a kind of a peaceful guy. He didn't really want, you know, these other kings were aggressive. They wanted to go to war and take more land. Uh, this guy was more laid back. He just wanted peace. But most of his 12-year reign actually was spent raising taxes because he had this incredible tribute he had to pay Rome, this indemnity payment every year, a thousand talents of silver, which was a huge amount of money. And so consequently, he was always raising taxes, and the Jewish people were some of the heaviest uh, that he oppressed with uh, oppressive taxation, so he could pay Rome. Uh, toward the end of his reign, again, he reigned for 12 years, and being hard-pressed for money as usual, uh, he sent his treasurer, uh, Heliodorus, to Jerusalem, uh, which is here called the glory of the kingdom, to raise additional funds. One historian says concerning this, the Jews detested uh, Heliodorus because of the merciless taxes that he had already imposed on them, and uh, this time he went too far. Having been apprised of the riches of the temple by one Simon, the Benjamite, who had a score to settle with Onias the high priest, uh, Heliodorus tried to plunder it. So he thought he was tipped off by this Benjamite. Look, you want money? Temple's loaded with gold, okay? Because he was trying to get back at this Jewish high priest. So he goes to the temple to plunder it, uh, but he's preventing, this is interesting, he was prevented from doing so by a supernatural apparition that rose up before him as he was about to enter the temple treasury, end quote. Well, shortly after he sent his treasurer, uh, treasurer Heliodorus to plunder the Jewish temple, Seleucus Philopater suddenly died of unknown causes. Didn't die in battle. Didn't die of a disease. Uh, thus fulfilling verse 20, There shall arise in this place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So I think God just wiped this guy out. Now, guys... This opened the way for one of the most wicked leaders the world has ever seen, who is a type of the Antichrist, which is what verses 36 
to 45 are going to be talking about, this opens the way for a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes to seize the throne. We will leave it there for tonight. I think you've had enough history to digest. All right? But we want to take a little time with Antiochus, and then we will scope out 2,000 years into the future, uh, because Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the Antichrist, and we'll see how that the Antichrist then, when he comes on the world scene, uh, will do many things that kind of um, Antiochus Epiphanes did before him, but he's going to expand it, make it global, instead of just what happened in, in ancient the land of Israel, okay? So we'll leave it right there for tonight. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, one thing that we know for sure, as we study this chapter, and I know for a lot of folks, history is not that interesting, but what is deeply interesting is how you laid out so specifically and in such a detailed way what was going to happen in the future. And Lord, it's absolutely incredible. This chapter, I think, more than any other chapter in the Bible, obviously has your stamp of authenticity upon it, that this is in fact your word, because nobody can predict the future every single time and be right. Uh, Lord, you know the end from the beginning. You inhabit all of eternity. There is no past or future to you. You live in the constant present tense, always. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we thank you. And we praise you that, Lord, you have told us things that are going to happen. Not only so that we can know the Bible is your word, but that we can be ready, that we can be watching and vigilant, especially those prophecies that deal with our Savior's second coming. And Lord, you hold us accountable for knowing these things. Unfortunately, as Paul the Apostle said in Romans 13, many of your people are asleep in the light. They're not watching. They're not vigilant. And the, uh, these events are going to take them by surprise like a thief in the night. But Lord, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Give us grace to be watching, to take these prophecies to heart. And Lord, as we see these things happening all around us as we do, that we constantly look up because we know your coming is near even at the door, and that we're ready, that we might be serving, that we might be uh, not sleeping, so that when you come, you might say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. So Lord, we ask you to continue to bless uh, these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.